Our text for this morning is again Psalm 25. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week when we were talking about this psalm, we gave to this psalm the title, The Way of Repentance. And we distinguished three main points in connection with that theme. First, praying for pardon of iniquity. Secondly, praying for instruction in the way. And thirdly, praying for relief from chastisement. We considered last week only the first of those three parts, praying for pardon of iniquity. In connection with the three petitions for pardon that David makes in this psalm, verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And in verse 18, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. This week, therefore, we look at the other two parts of the psalm. First, praying for instruction in the way, and secondly, praying for relief from chastisement. The prayer for instruction in the way is found in verses 4 and 5 of the psalm. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. There are really, people of God, two requests that David makes here in these two verses. The first is for instruction. Show me your ways. And the second is for guidance. Teach me, not teach, lead me in your truth. We pray then here in this, these two verses for, both for enlightenment of our minds and guidance for our feet. And implicit in those two petitions is, of course, the acknowledgement on the one hand that we are ignorant of God's ways, and on the other hand, that we are wayward. We are both ignorant and wayward. And both of these things, both this ignorance and this waywardness, are spiritual matters. The ignorance is not just a lack of teaching, but a lack of ability to receive the proper teaching. It is a darkness of our minds which makes it possible, impossible for us to come to a full and correct understanding of God's law. And our waywardness is not accidental, but is the tendency of our fallen natures. We are corrupt and prone by nature to evil. And therefore, our ignorance and our waywardness are due to our fall into sin and to that corruption which belongs to us as we are in our father Adam. We come then in coming to God, not just to acknowledge our sins, but to acknowledge that pollution and fallen state of our natures and not just to ask for pardon of sin, but to ask God to undo that corruption, to teach us his ways, that is, to enlighten our darkened minds, and to guide us in the way of his salvation, that is, to lead our feet where he commands them to walk. We need help, and therefore we seek the God of our salvation. As David himself makes clear here, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. We look to him with expectation, to him with hope and trust. And we look to him constantly because we know that there is no ability and no light in ourselves by which we may follow the ways that he calls us to walk. That, people of God, is the second part of the way of repentance. 
The first part is, of course, the asking for pardon. But that first part of, of the way of repentance is not by itself enough. We may not stop there. We have to also go on to ask God to instruct us in the way. We acknowledge that our sins are due to the weakness of our natures and therefore ask God, the God of our salvation, to come and help us in the way that we should walk. That's the petition then that David asks here in these verses. But there's a lot more material in this psalm that is directly related to that petition and we have to look at that also. That material is found in verses 8 to 14. Now we noticed last week that this is a chiastic psalm and that the heart of this psalm, the very center of this psalm, is that petition for pardon in verse 11. That petition for pardon, or yes, that petition for pardon stands right in the middle of this material which we're now going to be talking about. And that material has nothing to do with petition. David is not here asking God for anything, but rather he's talking about the Lord's character and about the Lord's works. And he's talking about the Lord's character and his works to encourage himself in the petitions that he's making, and especially, as will become very clear as we talk about these verses, especially in that petition that the Lord will teach him and guide him. Good and upright is the Lord, David says at the beginning. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. Now David brings to mind there two attributes of the Lord. Two attributes of the Lord. First, his goodness, and by that he means his benevolence or his disposition to do good to his creatures. And secondly, his uprightness or his justice or righteousness. These two attributes of the Lord seem to us often to be in conflict with each other and especially to be in conflict with each other in his dealing with our sins. His uprightness, on the one hand, would demand of him that he punish our sins as they deserve. But his goodness, on the other hand, would lead him to forgive our sins. We tend to think of these two attributes somewhat as working against each other. And yet here in the psalm, they are seen as being in perfect harmony, as we must also always see them. Good and upright is the Lord. He is both good and upright, and he is both good and upright in his dealing with us as sinners. Therefore, David says, he teaches sinners in the way. They are in perfect harmony harmony with each other. How? Well, on the one hand, in his uprightness, of course, the Lord will not let one jot or one tittle of his law pass away. His law stands. He does not reduce the demands of his righteousness. He does not back away, as we so often do in dealing with our children. He does not back away from the rules that he has established. He has made those rules, and every one of those rules must stand and will stand. He is upright. But in his goodness, the Lord helps us to obey. He teaches us his ways, and he leads us in his paths as in Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So the Lord comes to us with his law, and he says to us, as sinners, you must keep this law. I cannot 
reduce the requirements of my law. This law stands, and you must obey. But in his goodness towards us, he comes to us also, and he says, Come, I will make you my pupil. I will take you by the hand and lead you in that way in which I command you to walk. He works in us so that we can do what he requires of us. He is both good and upright. The really striking thing about this verse, people of God, is that it says, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. You find many expressions throughout the Psalms and even in the Old Testament, and especially in Psalm 119 about the Lord teaching men his way and many petitions by men to be taught in that way. But the particular emphasis of this Psalm is that he teaches sinners. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. He comes to us who are fallen, who are corrupt, who are ignorant, who are wayward. And he comes to us with his grace and teaches us and guides us so that we may fulfill the requirements which we are not able to do by ourselves. David, we said, uses this character of the Lord to encourage himself in his petitions. He has asked the Lord to teach him. He now encourages himself to believe in that Lord, to wait upon him, and to expect help from him by reminding himself of the goodness and uprightness of the Lord whom he seeks. His confidence is firmly grounded, grounded in the testimony of the Lord concerning himself and grounded also in the long experience of himself and God's people with the Lord. The Lord teaches sinners in the way. But not all sinners. That too has to be seen as part of this psalm. David makes that very clear in the next verse of his prayer. He says in verse 9, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. It is not sinners in general whom he teaches, but it is those sinners who humble themselves before him, who humble themselves first in asking pardon of their sins. They acknowledge their sins. They acknowledge their inability to do anything about those sins themselves and ask the Lord for free pardon. And they humble themselves in the second place by asking him to teach them. They acknowledge before him their inability to know and to walk in that way without the Lord's help and come to him humbly beseeching him to grant them the desires of their heart. It is the humble then that the Lord teaches and that he guides. Now the second thing that we have to see here in these verses is that David reminds himself to encourage himself in his prayers David reminds himself of the blessings of the covenant, and especially in these first verses of the blessings of the, those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That's verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Covenant is there in verse 10 a synonym for the commandments. The Lord speaks of the commandments in the book of Exodus as his covenant with his people. And he speaks of his commandments as his covenant 
because in his commandments he is addressing his people as their covenant God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he makes very clear to us in his law then that when he becomes our God, our covenant God, we have an obligation to walk in obedience to him. We have an obligation to keep his covenant by obeying his commandments. All the paths, David says, of the Lord are mercy and truth or mercy and faithfulness to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. He's talking about the blessing then of those whom the Lord teaches and whom the Lord takes by the hand to lead in his way. And he says, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to them. They know his mercy. They know his faithfulness. They know it in such a way, people of God, as a man knows fresh air after rain. The mercy and truth of the Lord are all around them. And they, as it were, breathe that air, live on it, and rejoice in it. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Now think for a moment about what you have up to this point in the psalm, up to this point in our consideration of the psalm. You have, on the one hand, that David is a sinner. That's what belongs to him. And that's the only thing that belongs to him. He's a sinner. But what belongs to the Lord? To the Lord belongs pardon, To the Lord belongs instruction and guidance in the way. And to the Lord belongs the blessings of those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. All these come from him. Let's go down now to verses 12 to 14 of the psalm. And here in these verses, David really repeats the teaching that is found in verses 9 and 10. Verse 12 is parallel in its idea to verse 9, though he uses different words. Here in verse 12, he substitutes for humility fear. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Fear and humility, people of God, go together. They are two sides of the same coin and inseparable companions in the heart of of the godly man. And they are thus because in our fear and reverence for the majesty of God, we humble ourselves. Humility is the practice of fear. Humility is the practice of fear. We manifest our reverence by our humility. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him, notice that he's really repeating the same idea as in verse 9. Him, that man who fears the Lord, shall he teach in the way he chooses. Now the New King James capitalizes the second he in that line of the psalm. Him shall he teach in the way he chooses and makes it clearly a reference to the Lord. But it's also possible, people of God, to make that pronoun a reference to the man who fears the Lord. And that actually makes better sense of this verse, I think. The man who fears the Lord chooses a particular way. He sets his heart on that way. And because he fears the Lord, he chooses that way that is pleasing to the Lord. He chooses the Lord's way. He sets his heart on the way that the Lord has laid out for him. And then David says, the Lord teaches him in that way. The Lord shows him what is the meaning of that way. 
instructs him about how he should walk in that way and even goes further than that as we've already seen he takes him by the hand and leads him in that way him shall he teach in the way he chooses in verses 13 and 14 then David again reminds himself of the blessedness of those who walk in that way just as he did in verse 10 All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, he said in verse 10. Here he says, he himself shall dwell in prosperity. His descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Three different blessings. He himself shall dwell in prosperity is first. Now that's a rather weak translation of the Hebrew. First of all, The words in the Hebrew are not he himself, but his soul. His soul. And you can find this in the King James, by the way. His soul. David is talking here about the blessings that are spiritual. Makes that very clear. He's not talking about earthly good particularly here. He's talking about spiritual blessings. God does bless us with earthly things. And we rejoice in those blessings. But the focus here in this psalm is on spiritual blessings. His soul shall dwell in, not prosperity, but good. And that's the same word that David uses first in verse 7. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. And again in verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Now in verse 13, He himself or his soul shall dwell in good. That is the goodness of the Lord. The Lord is good. And he makes those who fear him dwell in good, in his goodness. The second blessing that David talks about here is his descendant shall inherit the earth. Now that's an allusion to the promise that God made to Abraham when he said to Abraham in Genesis 17 that his descendants would inherit the land in which he was a stranger. His descendant shall inherit the earth. But that promise also carries us forward to the New Testament and to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Beatitudes when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours, the earth and all that is in it. You are due to be heirs of. God has appointed you and your children, the generation of the righteous, to be heirs of the whole of the earth. The third blessing is that described in verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. That word secret that we have here is a very difficult word for us to translate from the Hebrew. We do not really have an English equivalent for that word. And if you would look that word up in a concordance of the Bible, you would find that this difficulty of translating that word comes out in the variety of the translations that are used for it throughout any translation that you may take. For example, in the New King James and in the King James also, that word is translated at least three different ways. Sometimes it's translated as assembly. It refers sometimes to a gathering of men. Sometimes it is translated as council. Not council, C-I-L, but council, S-E-L, that is advice, counsel, or planning. And sometimes, also in other places, it's translated as secret. So what's the idea here? 
How are we to take it? And by the way, the root meaning of that word seems to be pillow. Just as a note of interest here. So you have all these different ideas associated with that word. I think the best we can do in translating that word here in verse 14 is probably secret counsel. Secret counsel. The secret counsel of the Lord is with those who fear him. What's the idea, though, of that? Well, the idea, I think, is clearly shown to us in Genesis chapter 18. And we should turn there for a minute just to look at what the scriptures say there. They don't use this word there, but they give us an illustration of what it means that the secret counsel of the Lord is with those who fear him. In Genesis 18, the Lord has come to Abraham on the plains of Mamre with two angels to tell him about the birth of Isaac to come in about a year. And Abraham is very hospitable to the Lord and to the angels who are with him and gives them a meal. And when they are finished, the Lord and the angels go on their way. And they go on their way to rescue Lot from Sodom and to bring the Lord's destruction upon those two evil cities. Abraham accompanies them on that way, goes with them at least part of the way. And as they're walking together, the Lord begins to talk to himself, verses 17 and following, and he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, notice the reference to the covenant, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In the context, then, of the covenant, the Lord decides to reveal to Abraham his secret counsel decides to tell him what he is going to do about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't have to. He could have gone on his way without saying anything to Abraham. He could have brought that destruction, rescued Lot at the same time, and let Abraham find out about the rescue of Lot in due time. But the Lord decides instead to make it known to him because of his covenant. Because of his covenant. He knows Abraham, that he will become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Abraham is his friend. He has become Abraham's God, and Abraham has become one of his own, a friend of God. And God decides to open to him the secrets of his heart. That's what this psalm is all about. In the context of his covenant, God decides to open to those who fear him the secrets of his heart, his secret counsel. He establishes intimacy between himself and his people. That's the blessing of those who fear him and walk in his ways. He shows to them his covenant. He shows him them his covenant then in a very practical way, doesn't he? He makes them know, would be even a better translation of that, he makes them know his covenant by revealing to them his secret counsel. His secret counsel is with those who fear him. In summary, then, people of God, what we have here in this second part of the psalm is, first of all, a dependence on the Lord's character. He is good. 
and upright, by which David encourages himself in his prayer. And in the second place, we have a reminder of the blessings of those who walk in that way. It's not an easy thing to humble ourselves and to seek the Lord's guidance and teaching. It's not an easy thing for us to be every day struggling against this tendency of our natures towards sin. But David strengthens and encourages himself in that way, strengthens and encourages himself in his prayers to the Lord by reminding himself of the blessings of those whom the Lord has taught and whom the Lord has taken by the hand and guided in the way that he has chosen. He shows them the secrets of his counsel. That brings us then to the final part of this sermon, praying for relief from chastisement. David is dealing in this psalm not only with his sins, but also with the problem of his enemies. That's very clear in the first few verses of the psalm. Let not my enemies, he says, triumph over me. These enemies, David says, are those who deal treacherously. Verse 3. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. That is, either they are friends of David who have betrayed him, as Ahithophel did at the time of Absalom's rebellion, or they are people who pretend to be friends, but who are really seeking harm and ruin for David. According to verse 19 of the psalm, they are many. He says, look on my enemies. In verse 19, for they are many. And also in verse 19, they hate me with cruel hatred. The repetition that we have there in verse 19, hate with cruel hatred, emphasizes the fact that these enemies' hatred of David is active against him. These are not people who hate him passively, that is, who simply delight in evil and trouble that comes upon David from other sources. But they are enemies who are active against him, who hate him with a cruel hatred, who manifest their hatred in their cruelty towards him. So David's dealing with enemies. But what we have to see here is that those enemies are connected with his sin. Partly that's due to the fact that they see how vulnerable and weak he is in his sins and take advantage of that weakness. They're not ashamed to kick him when he's down. But partly that is, and more importantly, that God is using these enemies to chastise him. These enemies are the rod in God's hand. Now all our suffering is from God, and all of our suffering may in a certain general way be called chastisement. That is, all of our suffering is the result of our fall from righteousness. All our misery and all our trouble comes to us here because of that original sin. So all of it may be called, in a certain sense, chastisement from the Lord. Nevertheless, it's important to distinguish in the sufferings which we endure between the times that the Lord brings trouble on us simply to test us, not because of specific sins, and other times when he chastises us for specific sins. For example, when God called Abraham to offer up his only son Isaac, he was not responding to any specific sin in Abraham's life. He was testing Abraham. And when God allowed Satan to do such terrible things to Job, the Lord had in fact said to Satan before that, Have you seen how upright my servant Job is? That was not then a response to particular sin in Job's life. But in other cases, it is. The Lord sometimes does chastise us for particular sins. 
as he did the Corinthians, for example, when they abused the Lord's Supper. And Paul says to them, it's for this reason that there are many sick among you, and some even have died. The Lord is chastising his people in that, set, in that occasion for particular sins. Well, here, people of God, we have David acknowledging the chastisement of the Lord for his sins. The enemies have come against him because of his sins. Maybe he's thinking of Absalom and the connection of Absalom's sin with David's murder of Uriah the Hittite. We don't know exactly, but he's thinking of these enemies as being the rod of correction in God's hand. Now, that's not the way his enemies think. They have not received a specific commandment from the Lord to go and chastise David for his sins. Nor is their desire, as they come against David, to correct him. These enemies are thinking in terms of destruction. These enemies hate him with cruel hatred. Their purposes and the purposes of the Lord do not coincide. Do not coincide. The Lord's purposes are different. But that does not mean that the Lord's purposes are therefore less important and to be disregarded. David focuses on the cruelty of his enemies here in this psalm, but he is also thinking in the back of his mind, this is happening because of my sins. And it's in that context, that whole context of correction for his sin, that David then begins this psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. That's an introductory verse. The, the first two lines of that psalm are introductory. To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. Very similar to many other psalms where David says to the Lord, for example, hear me, before he begins the heart to talk about the heart of the matter. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That is, to the Lord, I direct my aspirations, my desires. All my attention is focused on him because from him comes my help. David looks to that very God who is chastising him, whose hand is heavy upon him, as the one who will be the source of his help. And his petition is, let me not be ashamed. He uses the word three times, and we'll come to the other two times in a moment, in verses two and three. But his first petition is, let me not be ashamed. What he means by that, people of God, is not that the Lord will take away from him, particularly the shame that is connected with his guilt, that's part of it, I think. But he has particularly in mind here the shame that would be connected with any victory which his enemies may achieve over him. So he adds, let not my enemies triumph over me. Do not let my cause be ashamed. Do not let my enemies have the right of rejoicing because they have achieved their purpose in thus afflicting me. And then he adds to that two other petitions, both of which also mention the shame. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. He extends his petition from himself then to all those who wait upon the Lord with him. Let none of them be ashamed and then turns that petition against his enemies, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Let their purposes be frustrated. Let their intentions fail. And let them know humiliation and shame as a result. And that's, of course, a necessary 
corollary of the petition, let me not be ashamed. David and his enemies are in conflict. The victory must go to one or the other. It cannot be both. David says, let it be me who is not ashamed. Let them be the ones who are ashamed. Let's turn now to verses 15 to 22. And verse 15, by the way, belongs with verses 15 to 22, with verses 16 to 22, not with verses 12 to 14, as our translation here seems to indicate. In 12 to 14, David is talking objectively about the Lord and about how how the Lord deals with those who fear him. In verse 15, David is much more personal again. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. And he goes on from there to make his petitions known. Again, verse 15 is introductory. Just as verse 1 is introductory to the psalm, so verse 15 is introductory to this last part of the psalm. And it's very similar in its idea to verse 1. In verse 1, he talks about lifting up his soul to the Lord. Here he says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. That is, he fixes his attention And his desires, again, upon the Lord. He focuses himself entirely on the Lord. And he does so because he trusts in the Lord. And he makes the object of his trust specifically known. For he shall pluck my feet out of the net. That's what he looks for from the Lord. He shall pluck my feet out of the net. That is, he will disentangle me from my sins, from the consequences of my sins, from all that my enemies have done to me. Let's take next verses 16 to 18. I think those are somewhat distinct from verses 19 and following. So verses 16 to 18 next. What you have in those verses are personal petitions, but those personal petitions are mixed with complaints. You have a going back and forth here in these three verses. Turn yourself to me, petition. Have mercy on me, petition. For I am desolate and afflicted, a complaint. The troubles of my heart have enlarged, another complaint. Bring me out of my distresses, a petition again. And then verse 18, two more petitions. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. His troubles are one that he is desolate. That is, he's solitary. That's what the word desolate means. He's solitary. He's alone. He has no one to help him. In the second place, his troubles are that the troubles, or better, straits of his heart are enlarged. And you see that David introduces a kind of paradox there in that line. The straits, that is, the narrow places of my heart are enlarged, almost as if he's saying that relief has already come to him, but that's not his meaning, of course. What he means is that those straits have grown more difficult for him. His distresses are very great. He is suffering pain or toil, and he is dealing with sin. Forgive all my sins. On top of this, it's clear from the way that David brings his petitions to the Lord that the Lord seems to him to be ignoring him. The Lord's face is turned away. So he makes then a series of petitions in these verses. And in this series of petitions, he begins with something very basic and fundamental and proceeds to the precise desires, the precise things that he wishes to ask. First, turn. Turn to me. If the Lord will not turn his face to David, then David might just as well stop praying right there at that point. None of the other petitions make any sense. Unless the Lord first turns his face towards him and gives to David his attention. Have mercy. That's what David needs in a general way, the mercy or compassion of the Lord. Set aside your anger, or at least let that anger now be mixed 
with mercy towards me. And then finally, the precise desire, once you have turned your attention to me, once you have become compassionate to me, then bring me out of my distresses. That is my need. Bring me out of my distresses and forgive all my sins. Let's go on then to verses 19 to 21. Here, David begins by saying, consider my enemies. Now, it's very interesting that that word consider is actually the very same word that he uses at the beginning of verse 18. Consider my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies. So David first says to the Lord, consider me and let your compassion wake. And then he says, consider my enemies and see what they are doing. They are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. Let your compassion towards me wake not only as you turn to me, but also as you consider what my enemies are doing against me. They hate me with a cruel hate. Therefore, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. He asked for preservation. Do not let my enemies overcome. He asked for deliverance. That is, take me out of these distresses. And he asks again that he may not be ashamed, for he puts his trust in God. He repeats the petition for preservation in verse 21. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. We have to take a couple of minutes at least to talk about what that means. Behind that petition, people of God, lies the truth that in sin there is no safety. There is, in sin, no safety for us. Whenever we sin, we expose ourselves to multiple dangers. We expose ourselves to the danger of God's wrath. We expose ourselves to the danger of death. For sin brings forth death, as James says. We expose ourselves to misery, to the physical and spiritual consequences of sin, by which God punishes or chastises sins in those who will not obey him. There is no safety in sin. No safety whatsoever. There is only danger. There is only exposure. There is only vulnerability. There is only ultimately misery and trouble. And finally, death. The way of safety is the way of integrity and uprightness. And that's what David is talking about here. He asks that the Lord will teach him and instruct him in the way that the Lord will bring him, in other words, into that way of righteousness, into that way of integrity and uprightness. And that in that way of integrity and uprightness, he may know safety. Safety from all the dangers to which sin exposes us. For I wait for you. He trusts in the Lord. Now this prayer of David then is throughout, with the exception of one line in verse 3, an intensely personal prayer. It's a prayer for forgiveness of personal sins. It's a prayer for leading personally in the way that he must walk. It's a prayer for relief from the chastisement that he has experienced. And yet at the very end of his prayer, David extends the concerns of his prayer To all of God's people. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. He shows his love for the house and people of God. Makes it very clear that he does not consider himself to be isolated in his coming to the Lord and in his needs before the Lord. There are many others who are in trouble. 
and who need the same things that he needs. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. This then, this prayer for relief from chastisement, is also, or may at least also at times be, a part of the way of repentance. We ask for pardon, we ask for instruction in the way, we also, at least at times, ask for relief from chastisement. But that prayer for relief from chastisement has to follow, logically anyway, the others. We cannot pray for relief from chastisement until we have asked for pardon. We cannot pray for relief from chastisement until we have prayed for teaching and instruction in the way. We cannot ask God to put away his rod of correction until we have returned to the way of obedience. It makes no sense. It makes no spiritual sense to say, take your chastisements away and let me continue in my sins. The way of repentance then is a threefold way. It is the way of asking for pardon. It is the way of asking for instruction and guidance in the way. And it is the way, finally, of asking for relief from the heavy hand of the Lord's chastisement. But the psalm also makes it clear, people of God, that that way of repentance is a way of great blessing. A way of great blessing. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen. Let us, in response to God's word, make confession of our faith with the Church of all ages using the words of the Nicene Creed. That's found on page 13. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to